Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This uh, past week we did the class Marginalization and Restorative Justice and the discussion was concerning a Japanese novelist, Shusako Endo. And it raised the question of the relationship of Christ to culture. And Endo, who is a Catholic Christian, or was, he's passed away, his argument is that Christianity will in fact not take root in Japan. He pictures Japan like a mud swamp, and the tree of Christianity just won't grow there. But the book that he writes called Silence, it really raises the question broader than Japan, is there any natural or native soil for Christianity? Can we say that Christianity in fact has really taken root in this country? That is, is American soil, German soil, Roman soil any less corrosive to the gospel than Japanese soil? And the answer to this problem lies, I think, in how we perceive Jesus' relationship to Judaism and Judaism's relationship to Christ. And the picture here in Matthew, throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew is certainly Jewish, and he's going to rely upon the Jewish scriptures. But Christ is not defined by Judaism, but he is the telos, he's the end, the fulfillment of what it means to be Jewish. Let's read then Matthew 1, 22 to 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates God with us. And so Matthew uses the phrase again and again that we see here. All this took place to fulfill the scriptures. And in fact, even in depicting the birth of Jesus, many think that he's relying upon the stories of Genesis. You know, there's two depictions of creation in Genesis. In the first description, we have the genealogy here in Matthew up at the beginning. And then we have this, the virgin birth here in verse 22. Throughout his gospel then, he's going to place Jesus, interestingly, within a picture of the Old Testament. That is, that all this took place to fulfill what was spoken. And we might read it as this to fulfill, we might read it as to bring to its designed end. There are some ten examples of this phrase being used. And in Matthew, as in John, I think, Jesus is not depicted as challenging Judaism, but as standing within it, as fulfilling it, and maybe even as defining it. 
That is, Judaism is not brought to its designed end apart from Christ. And the point of Matthew's formula, I think it's too simplistic to describe these passages as, oh, here's a prophecy and here is a fulfillment. Because many of the passages he cites are not even prophecy at all. Jesus fills out Judaism. He embodies the Hebrew scripture. He embodies Torah. As Jesus is the substance, he fills up the scriptures of Israel in a substantially new way. There is this embodiment, maybe even not necessarily a moving beyond Torah. He says, after all, in 517 of Matthew, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And he goes on to say, not one jot nor tittle will pass away. The other thing about Matthew's gospel, it's structured around five discourses that all include the formula when Jesus had finished these words. And so many point at Matthew's fivefold division as like that of the Pentateuch, you know, the five books of the Pentateuch, the five divisions of the Psalms, the five divisions of the book of Ecclesiasticus, the five divisions of the story of the Maccabees, the five divisions of the book of Enoch. And Matthew begins his gospel then with the same words that we find in Genesis. You know, we did this with John. In the beginning was the word. Guess what? Matthew does the same thing. He has the words, the record or book of Genesis. He uses the word Genesis. And of course, in the book of Genesis, the the word is used some ten times. And by the time probably that Matthew is writing in the Septuagint, they're calling the book of Genesis, Genesis. And the echo of Genesis is made all the more evident here in the genealogy he does both things he recounts the genealogy of Jesus then here in uh, 122 about the birth of Jesus it's very much a kind of echoing of Genesis 2 4 and Genesis 5 1 and so in Matthew we find the following summary so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations and from David to deportation to Babylon 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah 14 generations now clearly he's attaching some significance to this word 14 and many see this and it's the idea is not so much oh this is actual movement through time but he's attaching this to the significance of the name David David is often attached with the number 14 And so the writers of the New Testament picture Christianity as filling in some ways the same space as Judaism. In the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says this very specifically. And this is a decade at least before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Paul reminds the Corinthians, you are God's temple. And of course, the vast majority of Jews in the Second Temple period, they've probably never gone on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They probably never sacrificed. 
But now all can partake in the workings of the temple through Christ, who is the true temple. And certainly with the destruction of the temple, you know, this is John's gospel, we believe was written after the destruction of the temple. That Jesus here is continuation of the temple in the book of Hebrews, the continuation of the priesthood. The point being that we may make too much of the division between Christianity and Judaism, but Christianity takes the Jewish temple, the Jewish priesthood, the Jewish sacrifices. They are now universally available for all people. What was local and largely symbolic is now universal and grounded in the person of Christ. I'm going to mention an obscure philosopher that maybe you've never heard of, but because of this guy, we often have the idea that Christianity and Judaism are necessarily pitted against one another. And this is Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. And both Christian and Jewish scholars after Hegel they go to great lengths to argue for a fundamental difference between Christianity and Judaism. And obviously I'm not denying that that difference has developed. But this is not the depiction of the New Testament. That is the complete partings of the ways. It's a slow and gradual process. We see it happening in the New Testament. We see it happening in the book of Romans. Probably it's well beyond the completion, the dates of the completion of the New Testament, that there is a complete break. But another mistaken notion is that we imagine Judaism is some singular thing before Jesus, and that it defines Jesus. You know, we've talked about in Sunday school, what is a Jew? What is Judaism? After all, there are Pharisees, there are Sadducees, there are Essenes, there are competing kinds of Judaism. In our age, you know, E.P. Sanders, he claims that most Jews in the Second Temple period, meaning the time of Christ, they could be described as what the priests and the people agreed upon. But that really doesn't help because we're not sure what they agreed upon. James Dunn has identified monotheism, election, Torah, the temple as key concepts. Richard Bachman says a shared land promise, the common Pentateuch, the Decalogue, ethnicity, the Shema, purity. Others have said, well, there is no singular Judaism, but there are Judaisms. But actually that doesn't help either because, well, what is there? What is the fundamental one thing that any Judaism shares. You know, the plural Judaism requires a definition also. What is a Jew and what is Judaism turn out to be problematic. But I don't think that's just a Jewish problem. I think that's a human problem. Anytime we would essentialize a culture, make it a stable entity, we do the same thing. You know, there is no essential American, no prototypical Englishman. You know, I think we often imagine, oh, he's the guy in the top hat and the umbrella. I've been there, I've never found him. There is no stable definition of Judaism. Judaism and Christianity as distinct 
may not be a helpful understanding in our reading of the New Testament. You know, even in the New Testament, we have about four different groups, four different ways of identifying Judaism and Christianity. One, one group insisted that the Christians must observe the Mosaic law, they must be circumcised. Another group said, well, they did insist on circumcision, but the Gentiles have to keep some Jewish observances. Some did not insist on circumcision, but they actually insisted on the food laws. We see Peter actually committing this fallacy. Another group that did not insist on circumcision or observance of the food laws, and they really saw no abiding significance in any of the Jewish feasts. Jesus is the center of the Bible. Jesus is the one who determines its meaning. But of course the question is, well how do we determine who he is? Is he primarily Jewish or is he making a break from Judaism to start a new religion? I think the answer is neither. Jesus is not defined by Judaism. He completes it. And this is the, his relation to every culture, his relation to every human. In Japan, this was a problem. You know, Christian missionaries have often brought a kind of American nationalism. As Shusako Indo writes in his novel, a tree which flourishes in one kind of soil may wither if the soil is changed. As for the tree of Christianity in a foreign country, its leaves may grow thick and the buds may be rich, while in Japan the leaves wither and no bud appears. He's picturing this as a conversation between a Catholic priest and his interrogator. And Indo then describes Japan and Japanese culture as a place where Christianity just cannot take hold. It doesn't work, he says, in this culture. And indeed, today in Japan, after years and years of missionaries being sent to Japan, we spent 20 years there, there's less than 1% of the population that is Christian. Now we happen to live for a year in Kagoshima, near the port where Christianity, we believe, first came to Japan. Francis Xavier landed there in 1549, and 1549 to 1650 is actually called the Christian century in Japan. We went there at least one time, and it's not easy to find. There's this kind of low wall along the bay there, and then there's this golden statue of Xavier. And of course, Xavier landed in Kagoshima, and he made his way north, and in a year, he had hundreds and hundreds of converts. And then the missionaries that would follow him within this century, there were over 300,000 Christians in Japan. Japan was the most rapidly evangelized country, certainly in all of Asia. If you go 300 kilometers from Kagoshima, there's Nagasaki. You all have heard of Nagasaki. But you may not have heard of the persecution. That In Nagasaki, there are 26 martyrs who were crucified. And they've put up 26 statues. And this, in a way, marks the end of the Christian century. One of the harshest, you know, was it a successful persecution in all of Christian history. 
tens of thousands, some would claim hundreds of thousands of martyrs in Japan. Did Christianity take root in Japan? Well, it certainly did in the Christian century. Indo's novel, Silence, builds upon several historical facts, including these, but more. And that is that there really was a, a Jesuit priest named Cristobal Ferrara who apostatized under torture. There really was another Jesuit priest named Chiara who comes to Japan along with 10 other priests because they've heard that Ferrara apostatized and they've come to try to in some way undo what he's done. All 10 of them apostatize. And the man who is thought to be responsible for this was indeed a historical figure. Inoue was a Japanese magistrate who was set upon eradicating Christianity. And he developed, or there is developed, what is called the pit torture. And they hang victims upside down over pits of excrement and other garbage. And then they cut a wound in the forehead so the blood will drain out of their head so that they can live longer and it's actually more excruciatingly painful. And they did this because in the beginning they were just burning the Christians and that wasn't working. So they just came up with more and more excruciating systems. In the introduction to Endo's novel, the translator describes the pit torture. The victim was tightly bound around the body as high as the breast, one hand being left free to give the signal of recantation, and then hung downwards from a gallows into a pit which usually contained excrement and other filth, the top of the pit being level with his knees. In order to give the blood some vent, the forehead was slightly slashed with a knife. Some of the stronger martyrs lived for more than a week in this position, but the majority did not survive more than a day or two. Actually, there's a report of one Christian woman who survived two weeks hanging upside down over the pit. So burning, you know, Richard Cox describes burnings of Christians. Tens of thousands of people would come and watch the burnings. He said he sees 55 persons burned to death on the dry bed of the Kamo River in Kyoto in 1619. And among them little children of five or six years old in their mother's arms crying out, Jesus received their souls. But killing and burning became this huge spectacle and people would see it and then convert and they too would be burned. And so the authorities devised excruciating systems of a torture. And during the torture, they would argue with them. You know, don't you want to recant? Do you really believe this? All you have to do is step on the image of Christ. But you know, just think of it as a formal recantation. You don't have to do it in your head. Just raise your foot 18 inches. Move it forward one foot and step on the face of Jesus. Won't you do that? And so when Ferrara recants, or he apostatizes, he was the first, actually. No missionary had apostatized until 1632. 
And he was the leader of the mission among the Jesuits. And so it proved a shock to Christians. And this is why Endo uses him as the center of his novel. So is or was Japan a mud swamp? If it is a mud swamp, it was not during the period called the Christian century in Japan. I believe there were probably as many martyrs in Japan as any other single people group in all the world. Certainly Christians in Japan understand the struggle Indo describes in his novel. You know, you feel homeless. You feel you're not a part of the culture. You'd feel divided between your Japanese-ness and being Christian. And maybe it's true today that Japan is a kind of mud swamp. Indo describes it, it is a swamp because it sucks up all sorts of ideologies transforming them into itself and distorting them in the process. He says it is the spider's web that destroys the butterfly, leaving only the ugly skeleton. But isn't this description true of every culture? The effect that it has on the heart of Christianity. And I'm afraid that in this country we may not see the mud swamp. We may not see the corrosive effects this culture has had upon the heart of Christianity. But American nationalism, American individualism, consumerism, the turn to violence have a similar effect. And of course the question is if the gospel has been changed to fit the soil of this country. After more than 20 years in Japan, I understood the eroding effects of Japanese culture, Japanese nationalism, Japanese identity. It certainly impacts the Christian faith. But maybe when I came back to this country, I felt the homelessness that Indo described. I really didn't recognize the peculiar faith produced in Indo's words by the soil and water of this country. The political nationalism, the kind of insipid preaching, the, the shallowness of the music, the consumer mentality, and maybe just an outright hostility toward the depth of the gospel. If I had to locate the mud swamp of Japan, I would say it is made of the same stuff as the mud swamp of this country. So our tendency is to reify culture like we might reify Judaism. You know, in Japan, non-Japanese can never become Japanese, no matter what they relinquish. Each of these priests takes a Japanese name and they take a Japanese wife. I think in old Japan that may have been true, but in modern Japan, that is really kind of an impossibility. Because Japanese uniqueness, the Japanese language is unique, the Japanese brain is thought to be unique. The Japanese body, the intestine, is thought to be unique. The Japanese islands, the Japanese climate is always described as being unique. And this modern ideology of uniqueness, I think it was non-existent in the period of the Tokugawa's, the Christian century. But it is precisely the ideology that would make of Japan today an anti-Christian swamp. 
And of course, this was missing during the period in which 300,000 Japanese turned to Christianity. The story that I've not told you is the 200 years of the underground church in Japan that survived 200 years of persecution. I don't think there is another people on the earth that have survived that long under that intense of persecution. And so I think Shusako Endo is misunderstood. If the struggle he is depicting is limited to a Japanese context, think of Jesus. God in Christ had nowhere to lay his head. He was ultimately reviled by Judaism, by the Romans. He was reviled and crucified. And our temptation to resolve this original homelessness, maybe that's the continual temptation. Oh, he belongs here in this soil, in this Constantinian soil, this colonial Christianity, this national Christianity, this American Christianity, or maybe just institutional Christianity. The issue of the effacement of Christ, I think, is always at stake in Christianity's encounter with culture and the attempt to fill in the features you know look in the face of Jesus look in his wonderful eyes I think that's good but let's not mistake that face through imagining his cultural rootedness in some particular place like this and the resolution to this temptation is the way we begin to understand Jesus relationship to Judaism which is the model for understanding of his relationship to every culture. He is not defined by Judaism, but he is the telos, the fulfillment, the end of what it means to be Jewish, to be Japanese, to be American, or to be human. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.